Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues, have conversations with foreign affairs thought leaders and newsmakers, and give you the context you need to understand the world today. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to learn more. And now on with the show. I have something a little different for the podcast today. The episode you are about to hear is the first installment of an interview series called How to Fix Democracy, in which prominent thinkers, writers, politicians, technologists, and business leaders discuss some fundamental questions about the fate and trajectory of democracy today. How to Fix Democracy is a podcast and video series, and this episode features an interview with Michael Ignatieff by host of the show, Andrew Keane. Michael Ignatieff is a former Canadian politician and author of several books about world affairs. He is now serving as the president and rector of the Central European University. This is a Hungary-based graduate school founded by George Soros that the illiberal government of Hungary, led by Viktor Orban, has sought to shut down. In this episode, Ignatieff discusses the challenge to democracy posed by illiberal Democrats like Viktor Orban. And after listening to this episode, do subscribe to the entire series, which features some really interesting guests and discussion about the fate and future of democracy today. How to Fix Democracy is presented by the Bertelsmann Foundation in partnership with Humanity in Action. I am a Humanity in Action senior fellow, and I'm glad to present this crossover episode to you. Visit howtofixdemocracy.org to subscribe to the podcast and view videos of these interviews. Now, here is host Andrew Keen interviewing Michael Ignatieff. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. This is How to Fix Democracy, a series of interviews with one goal, practical responses to the threats facing democracy around the world. How to Fix Democracy is hosted by Andrew Keane, and presented to you by the Bertelsmann Foundation, with support from Humanity in Action. This episode features Michael Ignatieff, President and Rector of the Central European University in Budapest, Hungary. It was recorded in November 2018. In the global standoff between liberalism and democracy, and authoritarianism, if there is a ground zero, a place where these forces are clashing, it might be in Budapest, the capital of Hungary, and at the Central European University, George Soros's academic startup in Budapest in Hungary, which is at the moment in confrontation with the illiberal Democrats 
in Hungary. Um, and the rector, distinguished rector, president of Central European University is Michael Ignatiev. Michael Ignatiev is extremely well known as well as a former politician, a very well-known and distinguished academic. Michael, how does it feel to be in the, the center of things, in the center of this clash of civilizations between authoritarianism and liberal democracy? Oh, it's always nice to be at the center of the, the action, um, but provided you understand the action, provided you understand what's really at stake, um, and I think we're all scratching our heads to try and understand um, what these forces are. Um, Viktor Orban, just to take the example, won an election. Wasn't as free as he'd like, wasn't as fair as he'd like, but he won an election. He's pulverized the opposition by the standard political means. Um, he now dominates the political system utterly. But he claims he's a Democrat. Is he? Well, then the complicated question is whether uh, you're a Democrat if you uh, muzzle the free press, try and drive an institution like ours out of the country, and muzzle the courts. There, what you seem to have is using democracy against democracy, that is, using majority rule against these counterbalancing institutions, universities, medias, courts, regulatory agencies that are supposed to balance the majority, right, and produce what we call a liberal democracy. It's not liberal in the sense that it's, you know, all progressive in this. It's liberal in the sense that majority rule of the kind that Orban likes is balanced by minority rights and minority institutions. And, and that's the battle that's going on in lots of places. Mr. Trump, I think, is very hostile to the limits on majority rule. Mr. Um, Kaczynski in Poland doesn't like the limits on majority rule. And Mr. Orban definitely does. But they all claim, crucially, that they're Democrats. So this is, this is the challenge. It's almost democracy against democracy. That's what you see here, at least in Hungary. How does the Central European University fit into all this? Why has it become this, this flashpoint for the confrontation between, as you say, two kinds of democracies? Mm. Well, I think it's because we're a free institution. We're not a political party. We're not his opposition. We're actually a university, a graduate school that welcomes students from 100 different countries and has faculty from 40. But in, a, in this battle over the meaning of democracies, universities turn out to be really important because they're what you could call the, they're counter-majoritarian institutions. Mm. That is, a university self-evidently has to serve the society in which it is. It has to respect democratic rules. But a lot of what universities do is say, yes, but, you know, or have you considered this piece of evidence or that? And so universities have this, I think, important role in balancing democracy, providing the evidence, the knowledge that societies need in order to make good choices. But... I think that uh, Mr. Orban is um, basically hostile to free institutions, and he's especially hostile to those that were funded or founded by George Soros. Very briefly, Michael, what is the connection between Soros and Central European University, and what's going on between the Central University and the Hungarian government? Well, CU is founded and endowed by George Soros. George Soros is a Hungarian. He's a patriot. He's a Holocaust survivor. He worked in the late 80s with a bunch of Hungarian opposition intellectuals. They all thought we need a new university for a 
for the transition for a for a society coming out of communism, and that's what we were, and we've been here uh, ever ever since. Now, it's also important to say that I don't take orders from George Soros. Mm. This is a university. I'm accountable to trustees, not to Mr. Soros. But I admire him, I respect him, and God knows I don't think we'd be here without this kind of vision that he had to create a university that would help a society go from communism to democracy. And that's what we've tried to do for the last 25 years, and we want to keep doing it. And the Hungarians want to take away your license? Is that what's going on here? Yes, they're saying basically, unless you jump through a whole bunch of ridiculous hoops, we're, we're not going to allow you to accept new students in Budapest after January the 1st, 2019. So that's coming up right away. We're, we're looking at a hard stop for this university, and it may force us to leave Budapest and, and, and go to Vienna. You're the author of a, a brilliant book, what, 30 years ago, called Blood and Belonging, uh, uh, about nationalism. Is this a repeat, or is this something new? <laughs> You're going to hate this on the one hand, on the other answer, but on the one hand, the return of nationalism, no question. And nationalism... Is but always, not fascism, nationalism. No. Nationalism, um, this is a right-wing nationalist government that says Hungary for Hungarians, national sovereignty, all the old stuff. Um, but it's not fascism. This is a 21st century phenomenon that we're looking at. This is majority rule, single-party states that are also kleptocratic. That is, they steal a lot. They seek to dominate political systems using democracy. The, the red line distinguishing these phenomena from fascism is the organized use of political violence. I mean, what fascism is, is the use of political violence to kill, imprison, and intimidate opponents. This, I'm not saying something nice about Viktor Orban, but it is a fact that there are no political prisoners in Hungary. There, you know, there, I don't think the secret police is listening to this interview. If they, do, if they are, I don't care, right? The, the line between these 21st century single-party states and fascism is very clear, and it's violence. At the moment, these regimes are not on, on the fascist end at all. Now, could they become fascistic? Could they become totalitarian? I don't exclude that possibility, but... Everything is what it is and not another thing. This is not fascism. What makes it interesting, in fact, is that they're 21st century phenomena. These regimes use the latest media to dominate the political system 24-7. The other key feature which distinguishes these regimes from the 1930s, if you don't like Hungary, you can leave. If you don't like Poland, you can leave. If you don't like Russia, you can leave. If you don't like China, you can leave. This right of exit separates these regimes from the totalitarian systems of the 1930s. In Russia, there is violence. It's not just rhetorical violence. It's physical violence as well. Is Putin, if, if anyone is, has pioneered the model you're describing, is it Putin? Well, I think that uh, Putin was a trailblazer, yes. He grafted the old kind of Bolshevik communist system of single-party rule to modern capitalism and created this system in which you have kind of a Bolshevik single party that divides the spoils of a capitalist regime among a small circle of, of elites. And that's had huge, I think, impact on China. I think it's had... But I, I think you also need to give credit to uh, Viktor Orban. Who's credit, worked, uh, yeah. in quotes. <laughs> no, I mean, 
my point is that Viktor Orban is a political innovator. I take him very seriously. Mm. He's probably the most influential politician in Europe after Macron at the moment. Um, because, wow. yeah. because he's understood that you can take a single party system of rule, you can use democracy to legitimate yourself, and then you divide the spoils up among your a widening circle of crony. I mean, he's essentially created a new class who are yoked in and, and linked to his political fortunes. The problem for all these regimes is they don't have a succession. Who comes after Putin? Who comes after Xi Jinping? Who comes after Orban? Who comes after Kaczynski? The vulnerability of these regimes long-term is they have no future. Erdogan as well. Erdogan as well. And, and the... The one thing you can say for democracy, if you don't like these rascals, you vote them out and get a new one. The, the dilemma here and the risk to democracy in Hungary is that the ruling party here is creating a regime in which they can't afford to lose. They're so, they've got so much control of the economy that if they were to be forced from power, they fear they would have to go to jail, right? Putin, you know, after Putin... Putin has to last forever because otherwise he goes to jail. Erdogan may be the same. This is what makes these regimes, in my view, a long-term threat to democratic order because, you know, the unseen thing about democracy is there are systems that allow winners to lose and then win again, right? They mm. provide for alternation. These systems, all of them, have no reliable means to, to, to create their own succession. And that means, it seems to me, they're long-term unstable. What is the importance of political theater, of this kind of ongoing daily reality television show in terms of the maintenance of these kinds of regimes? There's an interesting fusion between the propaganda apparatus of communist times, single party, control the message daily, and 21st century American-style attack politics. I mean, <clears throat> this is not old technology. This is the grafting of an old tradition of, you know, communist-era propaganda with the latest and greatest 21st century social media. I mean, these guys, uh, the Orban regime has understood that total media dominance all the time the permanent campaign, the permanent mobilization. You must always have an enemy. You must always be fighting the enemy. You must always be winning against the enemy. Is crucial to kind of mobilizing your base and demobilizing everybody else. So everybody, there, there are lots of people in Hungary because it's a, it's a, it's still a society with lots of freedom. Lots of people in this country don't like this regime at all, but they've been demobilized by a constant bombardment campaign that says, I, we dominate the space, no other voices really matter. So, Michael, how to fix democracy? What are we going to do oh, about yeah, it? Oh, yeah, that's an easy question. Uh, easy question. If anyone can answer it, it's you. Behind <laughs> you is uh, Edmund Fawcett's excellent book, Liberalism, Liberalism, the Life of an Idea. Is that the challenge, that we need to rethink what liberalism is? I think we're always rethinking liberalism. The liberalism of the 19th century is not the liberalism of the mid-20th century. The liberalism that I think of as liberalism is not everybody's liberalism. It's, it's um, a limited state that is a state constrained by rights and constitutions with a basic premise of 
welfare and compassion that says nobody falls through the cracks. We're all in this together. And, we, and so it's a use of state power to equalize conditions and make life fair for as many people as we can. It's also a vision of liberalism that says capitalism's fine, but it only operates when it's strictly regulated and controlled. And when people pay a certain percentage of their tax to sustain a range of public goods. That's my, that's what I think of, of liberalism. Um, some people would call, think of that as being too progressive. Some people would think that's too conservative. Liberalism is a constant debate about the limits of how far you should use state power to create conditions of justice. What liberalism has understood is that you need to have constitutional rules to keep the game from turning violent. But there's also some unwritten rules, which we seem to have just thrown out. There are rules that are called the rules of civility, but civility is too soft. It's, it's understanding that democracy is a battle for power between adversaries, not a battle with enemies. An mm. enemy must destroy you. An enemy must eliminate you. Mm. An adversary only has to beat you today and could be your ally tomorrow. Trump, Orban, Kaczynski, Erdogan, Putin, they all practice a politics of enemies. You're either with us or you're against us. And if you're against us, I destroy you. And that is the instinct that is most deeply destructive of democracy. And liberalism understands one thing, which is the purpose of politics is to avoid war, to avoid civil war, to avoid societies becoming so polarized and hating each other that they can't resolve their conflicts. And that's why the distinction between an enemy and an adversary is crucial to a liberal politics. One of the other instincts about liberalism, which is right, is everything isn't political. Mm. Some things have to be politicized because we have to make choices about them. But the less you can politicize, the better. You would say that, of course, because you're the biographer of Isaiah Berlin. I indeed And am. he, perhaps more than any other single individual, has had the most impact intellectually on you. Uh, two or three questions on Berlin. Love to bring him into the room today. What would he be thinking today, do you think, if he was around? Well, I, what I loved about Isaiah was not just what he thought, but his temperament, the way he thought. I think he'd say, stop setting your hair on fire. Calm down. You think this is bad? Think about the 30s. That was worse. Stop thinking this is the end of civilization as we know it. Calm down. Um, you, you, know, don't, you don't think we're being calm enough? You think there's hysteria on the left? I think there's a bit of hysteria on the left. If, this, if, if, our, if liberal beliefs are under challenge and under attack, the right thing to do is go back and find out why. Be honest. Look yourself in the mirror. There, there were forms of complacency in liberalism, forms of entitlement in liberalism. There was a way in which liberal elites began to feel the world ought to be run for our benefit. Mm. And we went, we sent signals, and we did things that went badly wrong. And when we presented candidates that embodied this sense of we're the ruling class, we're the entitled elite, we got a reminder from, from ordinary citizens, this won't do. And, 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 and I think that's something that I think Isaiah, who is a member of the, that patrician elite, actually understood very well. At the end of the day, if you can't persuade ordinary, ordinary people, working people, 
um, you haven't got the mandate to govern in these societies. And that divorce between a liberal elite and its democratic base has got to be closed. It's got to be fixed. One of the anecdotes, I think it was from your biography of, of Berlin that I remember, is that anytime people would raise their voices, he would leave the room. He was very uncomfortable with verbal conflict. What do liberals need to do in terms of perhaps changing their mentality, growing a thicker skin, acknowledging that they may be wrong? Is there a challenge for liberals in terms of reinventing their sense of truth and their role in the world that needs to happen? Well, one lesson I take from Isaiah, since you mentioned him on this subject, is he spent the entirety of the 1930s the liberal in the middle of rooms where there were communists who believed in the communist Soviet revolution on the one hand, socialists, British socialists who wanted to nationalize everything, and people on the right who thought these guys on the left were going to take away everything that they valued. He lived in an intensely polarized atmosphere in the 30s. Yes, he used to walk out of the room when voices were raised, but he was in a lot of rooms where the voices were shouting at each other. So a liberal in the 21st century needs to say, yeah, we should be in a lot of rooms where people are shouting at each other. What, what's your problem here? And the idea that you leave the room because you feel insulted, because you feel your identity has been threatened or challenged, that way madness lies. Politics is about being in rooms with people you don't like, people you don't trust, people you don't agree with, people who you feel actually demean or are, <clears throat> are um, look down on your identities. I mean, you know, just everybody settle down here. If, if we're going to create a broad-based coalition that can restore, you know, a redistributive state, a just society, um, a place where people feel included and don't feel terrified by global change, then we have to do it with a lot of people we don't like. Final question, Michael. One thing that we can be begin with in terms of fixing democracy, one concrete thing that anyone can do to start fixing a thing that most of us cherish, most of us think is essential to civilized life. I think we, without getting into the plumbing of each individual democracy, I think we need to be very, very concerned about the institutional integrity of our democratic systems so that everybody is free to vote and nobody is excluded from the vote. That will vary from country to country, but we need to care about the system of democracy to make sure that when you show up to vote, you can vote and your vote is counted and your vote matters. Just making sure that the system maintains its integrity at a time of intense polarization seems to me really important. Thank you for listening to How to Fix Democracy. This interview and others can be found online as videos under www.howtofixdemocracy.org. Or to stay up to date on this project and others, visit the Bertelsmann Foundation at www.bfna.org and click subscribe at the bottom of the page. This conversation is meant to provoke discussion and curiosity. The opinions and views expressed in this interview are solely those of the participants and do not necessarily represent those of the Bertelsmann Foundation, Humanity in Action, or their employees. 
All right. Thank you all for listening. And yes, do check out howtofixdemocracy.org. Subscribe to the podcast. I'll post the appropriate links on globaldispatchespodcast.com. It's a great series. There are about nine episodes at time of recording with more on the way, all featuring really interesting discussion and, and conversation. So do check it out. And Michael Ignatieff, uh, really interesting. One of my favorite books of foreign affairs that was really influential to me when I was uh, young in college was called Virtual War. It was sort of about the 1999 Kosovo intervention, and it was written by Michael Ignatieff, and I still think about that book today. All right, we'll see you next time.